Welcome to Pixel Chasing, the podcast where we talk to fascinating people about the most exciting and disruptive trends affecting our world today. With a focus on innovation, science and technology, we engage with the trailblazers and influencers who are taking an active role in shaping our future and signposting the current winds of change. So whether you're walking the dog, looking for some background content for your workout, or are simply looking to learn from experts in their fields, there'll be something for you on Pixel Chasing. Welcome to Pixel Chasing. I am your host, Michael Marciano, and in today's episode, I have the privilege of sitting down with Gregory DeWerp. Gregory is a seasoned real estate and technology investor with over 15 years of experience across banking, real estate, and venture capital. He's also the founder of AO PropTech, Europe's largest PropTech venture capital firm. At AO, Gregory is spearheading their mission to transform real estate into a more digital, efficient and accessible asset class by applying innovative technologies and business models that disrupt the real estate and hospitality industries. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Gregory and I really hope that you find him to be as engaging, honest and inspiring as I did. Happy listening. Hi, how are you, Michael? Hello, bienvenue, salut, comment ça va? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> good, we finally made it. How are you today? I am all right. I'm all right. Can't complain. And you? I'm not bad. It looks like, are you in an office somewhere or do you have a very nice chair yeah. at home? I'm in the office. I'm at the office office, not the home office. What's your, uh, are you preferring it there? Yeah, we, we never. We actually never closed during COVID, so there was not much difference for us. Um, uh, we just kept uh, operating business as usual. And it is because you launched, wasn't it pretty much around when COVID kicked and off? We announced, yeah, we announced we had launched already uh, um, uh, uh, the, uh, in 2019. But yeah, we look, a lot of people were working from home. Uh, we, we had a work from home kind of flexibility way before COVID anyway. So, um, you know, we, it, it, we didn't have to adjust to COVID. We just, you know, at this, it was not too uh, too disruptive for us. I'm going to get into a bit later on something, some questions around how COVID has influenced or impacted or even possibly shown some positive influences on what you guys are doing going forward. But that's a bit later on. I wanted first and foremost to just to talk about you a little bit, who you are, your background, where you come from, and how that has all presented itself as opportunities to where you are now and uh, the the epicenter of uh, prop tech, tech. Uh, in a world that is feels like it's finally taking it seriously. So, uh, who are you? So, who am I? Uh, so, my name is Gregory Dewerp. I um, was born in Switzerland. I grew up in Switzerland in a small, very small village, uh, surrounded by cows and mountains. Uh, so, I had a very uh, nice uh, childhood, um, very close to nature, away from um, you know the buzz of the city. And uh, I came to London uh, to do my to finish my master's at uh, London School of Economics uh, as part of a exchange program with my university in Switzerland, and then obviously uh, discovered uh, what life in the city was and all the opportunities it had to offer, and I decided to to stay. Um, at the time, I um, it was still a a cool thing to go into investment banking. Um, in hindsight, not so much, but you know, at least I uh, decided to jump right into it. That was the way for me to be able to stay in London um, because I don't think you could stay in London without having a, a job. Um, work very, very, very hard uh, for you know close to ten years in, in in banking. Initially, I thought I was going to do it for one year, and then you know I woke up um, you know a few years later, went through the financial crisis in the bank, so it was. Then definitely uh, an interesting times um, helped me kind of get a lot of experience um, learning how, you know, obviously working very hard, being in some way overworked. Um, but, you know, learn a lot, learn from great people. Um, and then I woke up one day uh, when I turned 30 and uh, I knew that fundamentally uh, the last thing on earth I wanted to be was an investment banker. Although I had a very, very good career and it was all good, but I also knew that 
um, I was still single um, and uh, not married, you know, no girlfriend, no kids. So it was still easy for me to make those kinds of more uh, drastic life-changing decisions, uh, which is leave a great paying job, a career, and then go figure it out. Uh, I had to figure it out. I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I I felt so strongly about what I didn't want to do that was good enough for me to, to make the jump. Um, and so I jumped um, and um, took me, you know, a couple of years. It was a difficult period. Um, I think when you leave a big organization, when you've been protected and everything is filtered around you um, and you get into real life and you have to figure out uh, you don't have that layer of protection, um, you learn a lot. Um, you learn from mistakes. You learn from experience. Um, but I think it's been a very important transition for me. I've uh, been able to spend a lot of my time um, teaching myself a lot of the things that I didn't know, exploring, expanding my mind, uh, and being able to start shaping what I was going to do next. Um, and my vision was always, um, you know, I want to be able to uh, join profit and purpose. I want to do something meaningful with my life. And there are many reasons why. Um, if you're if you're excited about it, I can tell you more later. Um, but obviously, um, I didn't have the credentials to potentially, you know, build uh, yet uh, what what my final kind of ultimate goal was professionally. So I had to take an extra step, which was let's build something that allows me to um, create a balance sheet for myself, uh, and then so that then I can use that balance sheet to go and build, you know, the next step. So. I started a real estate advisory uh, practice um, centered around um, private and public markets. So uh, looking at real estate, you know, in the listed market, but also looking at direct assets. Um, it was, you know, um, interesting year to, to, to set it up. And then I had a, you know, quite a great breakthrough. Um, and, you know, over the course of less than three years, I, I oversaw and, and worked on over $5 billion of deals um quasi on my own um and so this was a game changing for me that allowed me to create a further understanding of the real estate market uh and all its participants and all its intricacies its different layers and the complexities that surround the industry but at the same time also to build that balance sheet and to build that credibility with some large institutions that then decided that they wanted to seed me to um, start um, the next step, which was a real estate special situations fund, uh, where I designed a strategy to exclusively invest in real estate and hospitality through the lens of the public markets. Um, and that's something that I've been uh, working on for, 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 for a while. My view was always that real estate is misunderstood on the public markets. If you are a, 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 a public market investor, you don't necessarily understand real estate. You look at real estate as kind of a discounted cash flow asset. Um, if you are, on the other hand, a real estate investor, you hate the public markets because you have daily volatility, you have daily mark to market, uh, which you actually um, tend to shy away from. So as a result of that, there's a number of assets and companies that were sitting in the public markets, completely mispriced, completely misunderstood. And that's what that strategy allowed me uh, you know, to, to, to take advantage of. Um, as I was doing that, I was getting closer to being able to get to the end goal, which is create that one thing that allows me to be uh, mission and vision aligned um, and, uh, and, and join profit and purpose. And I was lucky to be firsthand able to witness all the issues, all the inefficiencies that surround the real estate industry. And I saw the opportunity uh, to potentially try and solve them through technology. Obviously, there were people that were doing this before. You had uh, very well-known firms in the US. And I couldn't quite understand why you had large venture capital uh, prop tech firms in, in the US, but you didn't have any in Europe. Uh, and it didn't make sense for me. Um, Europe is a bigger real estate market. Uh, Europe is miles ahead on the ESG front. Uh, Europe has a great academia um, and Europe has great uh, government support around some of those important themes. So in my mind, we should actually have 
bigger investors, more velocity in Europe. Of course, Europe is a more complicated market, but fundamentally, I generally believe that there was a big opportunity. So I went to some of my investors that were invested with me, you know, in the in the special situation vehicle that also had been working with me on the advisory side for, for a long time, so that knew me very much. And we we designed or I told them, look, that's what I want to do. Um, I need to have alignment from incumbents uh, for me to be able to be uh, strategic as an investor in the space. So some of my investors are very substantial uh, owners and operators of, of real estate. Uh, it's very important to make the distinction between simply owning but or owning and operating. And for me, uh, owning and operating was the only thing that interested me because I wanted to be able to um, sit across the table with asset owners who understand and understood the intricacies of operating and managing uh, assets. So um, I put it together, uh, wanted to have US ambition in Europe um, and wanted to design something slightly different. So raise 250 million euros, uh, evergreen vehicles, so permanent capital, which was also something that's not very common. Um, it's becoming more common now that Sequoia has talked about it. Now that Sequoia spoke about it, everyone kind of finally understands it. Um, but my, my view was, I have no doubt about the direction of travel and where this, um, this disruption is going. And I genuinely believe uh, even more so now than and I did before that it's a generational opportunity. It's the biggest opportunity of my lifetime. But I had a question mark about the speed and the velocity at which things would uh, unfold. Um, obviously, COVID in the middle has helped uh, and um, you know has removed completely this uncertainty about are people waking up and are is the industry going to change fast? So um, announced the launch of the fund, uh, um, you know, and um, which was I think a few weeks before COVID uh, also, but the fund had actually closed uh, in, 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 you know, Q4 2019, just didn't want to do too much fuss about it. Um, you know, my DNA was always to build and execute and not necessarily talk too much about it. Um, but obviously I had to adjust to an industry, uh, i.e. venture capital, where you have to do a lot of PR and talk about yourself. People want to be able to read articles. They want to see a website. We didn't even have a website at the beginning. And so I was trying to hire people and they were like, who are you? What, what is this? You know, and um, it was interesting because, um, you know, our, our first office was in a basement uh, in, in, in a building in Mayfair. And I think a lot of people didn't um, take me or, or, or us, you know, seriously at the beginning. And so, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't really care, but eventually I had to um, change a little bit my way of doing things and, and, and be more visible because that's how the industry works and you have to adapt a little bit. So we've, we've kind of, we're sitting right in the middle. And so since then, it's been a great journey. I think um, more than ever, I'm uh, inspired and excited by the space we're in, which is much, much broader than most people think and understand and happy to go into details later. Um, and, um, and yeah, I became a dad, um, during the pandemic. For the time. Uh, so I'm a, a proud father of a almost two years old son, uh, married to a beautiful wife. We live in London. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that summarizes, uh, me, sorry for the long drawn answer. Wow. Well, you know what? Usually, I'm very quick to interject, but those people who are listening can't see, but you're clearly very enthused about what you're talking about, and, and it felt inappropriate and wrong to interject. But I had questions throughout. My favourite bit was when you sort of flippantly said we raised 250 million. You know, everything you said clearly was, so, was, was challenging, but you made it all, I know you were talking about it as, as a journey, but I imagine throughout each of those stages, there were some very challenging points. And I know you, you, you spoke about it in a, in, a, in a casual capacity, but I suspect there were some very difficult points and you made transitions within your career, entering into new sectors, raising finance. Can you just point out one or two things that were actually very challenging and, and how you became them? Unless they were, were not, <laughs> you did it overnight, no problem. Um, I always say uh, life is a journey uh, and um, I always tend to think that you never actually lose or win, but you just either, you know, um, uh, ahead in the race or, or behind and you always have a chance to to get 
to get ahead, but you also have a chance to get behind. So you should never take anything for granted. I think my journey, my life journey is such that uh, I've had great challenges to overcome from early on. Uh, as a kid, you know, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer very early on, uh, something that's not meant to be curable back then. Um, and, um, you know, it was, I was one year old. So obviously my life started uh, very quickly with challenges, but I also learned that with the support and love of people close to you, you can you can achieve and you can do anything. So coming back to your question, I think the, the, the first challenge was um, joining investment banking, right? It was, it felt like it was the right thing to do because you can learn a lot. And I always thought, what am I going to get out of this? And I need to learn. I need to get into the system. I need to understand. And I hated pretty much everything about it from a culture standpoint, from, you know, the way people were, uh, it was still back in the days where you didn't necessarily have the right to complain about anything. And what struck me the most is that the people thought they were the smartest, greatest people on earth. You know, they were left, lived in this bubble um, that, you know, they didn't leave their, their building in Canary Wharf or wherever the office was. And um, I was struck because I just thought this is just so far away from what I believe in and who am I, I am as a person. But so I had to go against my DNA and, and spend eight years in, in a place where you don't necessarily like the culture. That doesn't mean I didn't meet great, awesome people, right? But overall, the culture was, was, uh, was, was tough to handle. That was my first challenge. The second challenge, and probably the biggest one, is leaving a high-paying job, security, where you have your identity, you stand for something, you know why you wake up in the morning, and then you quit, and then all of this stops and your alarm clocks ring in the morning the next day and all those habits all those automatic things that you used to do they're gone why what what what, what am i doing with myself what and um we live in a world where people are quick to be very judgmental and a lot of people said oh this guy is just going anywhere and what is he doing and you know some people probably make fun of you know me leaving the greatest thing on earth which was being an investment banker and you have to to, to to see through the noise you have to you have to just focus on your own journey people will always be there to have an opinion to criticize but actually it shouldn't reflect uh, who you are as a person uh, it's more reflection of their own issues and so putting your head down and say, okay, um, actually, I'm in a good place. I have time. I, I have savings from banking. I can last, you know, a couple of years maybe. And let's make the most out of those two years. Let's build myself. Uh, and so that's what I did. Um, and I was lucky that, you know, I started trading quite actively to find ways to also sustain myself. And I was lucky to invest in some amazing companies very early on on the, on the public markets, which... Um, allowed me to create a, you know, this extra buffer that allowed me to iterate for a bit longer uh, in my journey. And then um, when I launched my advisory uh, firm, you know, in real estate, although I had, you know, good experience in real estate, I had no credibility or credentials. So why would anybody have to listen to what I have to say? Or um, And then it's convincing the, the first and the second one, and then kind of breaking um kind of the, this this barrier and then you know um someone told me one of my mentors said the day you are going to be willing to give up is the day you're going to get your breakthrough and i remember clearly that i had a my big first deal about to to to, to transact it didn't happen i was very disappointed i thought okay you know what i've tried it didn't work i'm going to go back to banking and i'm going to be unhappy for the rest of my life but i, I tried and then within weeks, I got my big breakthrough and um, and then, you know, things just changed. They were turned on their head. And it's funny how life happens. You know, I went from that to doing over five billion of deals, you know, as a, as a small company on my own almost. I mean, this was life changing for me. And that gave me the confidence that gave me the momentum that gave me um, the ability to stop worrying about the short term and think about the long term and plan and build ahead. So um it's been a journey uh, and launching AO was the culmination of a lot of those experiences, those challenges, those success, those failures. And launching AO was a different mindset because I did it because I wanted to do it, not because I had to do it. 
So the mind, the mindset is very different. Um, you have less pressure. You obviously have the pressure you put on yourself that you want to succeed. Um, you're trying to build something new. You're trying to raise a lot of money. Um, but I was able to capitalize on the trust of, you know, great investors that um, um, believed in me, that knew me, and that believed in the idea and that were willing to take a chance. And so um, I love this idea of having been through the first few years or decades of my life consistently as an underdog. Uh, and I love that. And, and in a way, um, when you're a venture capital investor, you have to go and look for that underdog. You have to go against the consensus. Uh, if everything was so easy and we all agreed on all the deals we, do, we did, then there wouldn't be those crazy, amazing outliers, companies that just break out and change the world. Um, and so I think anchored in my DNA was this notion that you should be always uh, uh, looking for the underdog, or at least you should never dismiss the underdog. And I'd like to think that I'm a good proof of that so far. So you, you talk with uh, philosophic undertones, both framed from your early experience and how you've gone about over the past years to build this. How are you able to reflect that and how you operate the business? Anyone who has tried to raise money uh, in a startup capacity at an early age, at an early stage or a bit later on, is always made to feel inferior often when pitching for money. It's uh, You have to be presenting yourself within a certain in a certain way you need certain numbers certain growth and you're made to feel often that you're not even worth a response a generic email not for us or not interested do you reflect this philosophy in how you interact with people who come to you who will hear this and say wow this guy speaks my language he looks at the bigger picture he looks at the person he looks at the journey how does that manifest realistically in how you interact with people engaging you and how do you pass that back on to those who are backing you well, I'll start by saying that um, I am the one who feels inferior when I in meeting, in meeting with entrepreneurs because I meet some of the smartest, uh, most uh, exciting and inspired people. Uh, I feel very lucky to do that. Um, having said that, it's true that uh, it is somehow in a way a cutthroat industry and there are some codes, some are officials or non-official and sometimes it's hard to, to navigate. Um, I would say, look, we, we always answer to someone in life. Um, if it's not your investors, it's your partners. If it's not your partners, it's, there is always someone, no matter how successful in life you are, um, there is always someone you answer to. Um, I think, um, reflecting again on my own journey, I think one of the, what I consider to be the biggest luxury in my life today is that I have, uh, and I excuse myself, I'm gonna use a, a, a word I shouldn't use. I have the ability to never have to deal with an asshole in my, in my life. And I, as a result, I have a zero <laughs> asshole policy again, sorry for the language. And that applies to my personal life, that applies to um, the people in the firm, that applies to the people that we back. We, we wanna be, and I want to be backing good people first, um, doesn't matter how smart, how successful they are, if they're not good people as well, then there's enough companies in the world to back to be able to, to not have to have the headache. And so when, when we started building AO, I wanted us to be reflective of this notion that we are lucky enough that we can invest in great companies that potentially are going to be changing the world, especially since we are very focused on climate change through the lens of, of, of PropTech. And we feel privileged to be able to do that. And we feel that we can make a small difference in the world, hopefully. But wanting to make a difference in the world, in my book, also starts from how you behave and how you treat other people, whether it's at work or in your, your personal life. And I generally believe that karma exists. So always, always um, treat people with respect even the ones which are not treating you well, just take it on the chin because you don't want to lower yourself and start um, blurring kind of your focus and getting your emotions in, in, in the way. It's tough. Um, as an entrepreneur, you will get rejected 100 times. I've been rejected 101 times in my life, but 
every experience is a good experience and it creates your character, your resilience and your ability to become better and better and better what you do. I don't think that anybody gets it right the first time, but it's about trying to always extract the learnings from the difficult moments, the mistakes, the rejections, uh, the misunderstandings, always try to come out of it marginally better. Um, and so when you apply that, um, there is no way you can possibly not succeed at some point. It's just about being resilient, 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 however hard it is. Uh, if you're, again, in my view and from my personal experience, if you're working hard, one day you'll get your window, one day you'll get your chance, and it's you always have to be ready for it, um, no matter how long it takes. So much of what you say resonates. And I think it's uh, admirable and also good business to operate in that capacity. Presumably, there are people behind you who also have opinions and often strong opinions. What happens when there's a conflict where you, using a different compass, a different metric of investability, conflicts with another metric, which is purely financial? Does one win over the other? Or at that point, do we reach a grayer area? where maybe you're not as satisfied on the moral and social and empathetic level, but at the end of the day, it's still a commercial entity with people expecting, I presume, certain returns. And at some point we need to put that aside or can you always push with your value system? So, so I think those differences in opinion um, happen on a daily basis, you know, um, I try to run um, the firm with consensus-based approach internally, regardless of seniority, et cetera. Everyone has an opinion that should matter. And actually, I find a lot of beauty and value in the differences in opinion and the disagreements. I genuinely believe that uh, this is how you reach uh, the right decision. You always have to iterate a few times before you reach your final uh, decision. And in what we do, uh, it's not scientific. It's not rocket science. There's always many different ways to look at the same company, at the same people. And I think it's our own experience and background that make us look at something in a, in a specific way. Uh, and that's why you, you'll see companies that raise money from one firm and not the other. And you could have completely polar opposite opinions in the end you have to be able to respect um, the differences you have to be able to argue your opinion in a constructive respectful way and for us we generally believe that uh, we try to optimize and follow our north star which is we want to back good people we want to back companies that are going to make a positive impact to the world um, and I'm not suggesting that we are a nonprofit organization, but I think that we are in a space uh, where we can generally do both. Now, there will be times where we meet entrepreneurs that maybe is not our complete cup of tea. That doesn't mean they're bad people. They're just different. And so I think that's, that's okay. Um, but um, we try to have clear principles and they act as our North Star. And there will be times where you have to, um, you know, uh, make some concession one way or another. But we are always say we have to be able to justify and explain every decision that we make. And we need to be able to defend it in a reasonable, constructive way. If we can do that, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what our decision is, as long as we can go to sleep at night with it, we'll get some wrong. We'll get some right. At the end, it's about getting the major majority of them right um, and, and just follow our course and always try to question what we do, uh, question ourselves, not doubt, not, not over doubt ourselves, but question ourselves. And I think that's uh, how you grow and how you, you develop. So when you find that person, that company who, who took those boxes and as you say, you, you admire them and the idea is you want to support them. What does that look like? This day and age, from the outside sometimes, there appears to be this perception that raising finance is the same as being a successful business, and it's a badge of honor, and it's a rite of passage, and everyone must do it. 
And there's a lot of money out there these days and more than ever and post COVID, we've seen that across the board. What do you bring to the table as a value add when someone comes to, and you mentioned before, people can pick and choose where they get the capital from. When you're reflecting on what you bring to the table, is it a blank check? Is it support? You mentioned you're new to the industry from a sector perspective. What is it these days that you, you bring to the table that makes the relationship genuinely symbiotic? Yeah, so great question. So I'll answer that in, in two, two different parts. So I'll say fundamentally, one of my biggest observation about uh, venture capital um, is that the whole model is based on a specific underwriting that, hey, half of my companies are not going to succeed. X percent are going to be okay, and a small percentage are going to be potentially fund returner. At least that's the mindset for a lot of the firms, which has worked and is successful. My issue with that is that when this is anchored in your mindset, and I've seen it, and I see it many times, I see it on a lot of boards, when a company goes through a rough patch, a lot of investors will be very quick mm. Categorize them. Oh, this is going to be one of my write-offs, right? And so, as soon as the going gets tough, they mentally are okay with it, and they kind of lose interest because it's categorized in that fifty percent. And for me, it's just impossible to think like that. And so, to answer your question, how we add value, there's a there's a number of ways, which is. Um, First and foremost, uh, the heart and the soul that we put into this, because we are a relatively newer firm, we want that we don't, do not accept that any of our company is not going to succeed. And when we invest, truly, we think that they have the ability to make a difference. So we are going to fight to support, to go the extra mile, and we'll never ever put that company in the 50% until uh, until it's done and dusted. And we're lucky that it hasn't happened and we hope that it doesn't happen. Now, from a pure operational way, we have raised a lot of our capital from large owners and operators. We've created great um, uh, frameworks and structure to be able to leverage their assets to help our companies. We have an amazing uh, network of large real estate incumbents globally that work with us to integrate, to iterate, to give feedback. Um, we have a great uh, data science team in-house and a digital transformation expertise that's led by my partner, Otman, who comes from data science. And we apply this knowledge um, that has been drawn from other industries that went through transformation the same way real estate is, but maybe five, 10 years ago, and we able to apply a lot of those principles and draw parallels between the two. So we help our portfolio company companies design strategies around data very early on, even when data doesn't matter yet because the scale hasn't reached that level that, that where, where data kicks in. But it's very important that we enable them to build those their strategy, their team, their infrastructure around it so that it doesn't become a problem when they have 10 other problems to deal with. But equally, we help large incumbents, some of them are LPs, some, are, some of them are not, to think about digital transformation, to implement it. We help them on all sorts of things from hiring the right talent in-house to drive innovation, to design the right strategies around data, to think about rolling out technology in a portfolio. We do it, and it's a lot of time commitment. We don't do it for everyone. We do it when it, it, it matters. But it allows us also to really position ourselves at the core of those large corporates and understand how they organize, how they think, how they prioritize, because that in turn allows us to understand better product market fit for the companies that we back. Um, so I would say these are the highlights, but genuinely, um, if you speak to any of my entrepreneurs, uh, um, I think this the one thing that you will hear consistently is how dedicated in the good and the bad times and probably more in the bad times we are as a firm and how resourceful we are and well organized 
We also live in an industry where people only talk about the good things happening, the big rounds, the this, the that, and they kind of never talk about the challenges. The reality is the majority of the companies that you back will go through challenges. It's never, ever a straight line. Um, and so sometimes companies lose sight of, of that. And it can be very depressing for an entrepreneur that's going through his own journey when he reads every morning that this company has raised, you know, a billion, this other company is valued at 20 billion. And it sounds like everything is perfect and rosy out there. And you saying, hold on, I'm, it's not like that, right? So am I, am I failing? Am I doing something wrong? And sometimes, as you said, we lose the perspective that doing well is not necessarily a, 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 a reflected in how much money you raise or how quickly you raise or how high you raise. Because again, I always remind ourselves and myself and the team that when we invest in companies, I don't care if we look smart now or three months from now because it's a great flashy announcement. It sounds great. I care that we're going to look smart 10 years from now. And looking smart or being smart 10 years from now probably means that you're going to look stupid for a long time. And it's okay. As I said earlier, if you're on a journey and you have your North Star, you should be able to weather the storm. Doesn't mean it's easy, um, but it's part of the it's part of the journey, I guess. What comes across is a very genuine sense of caring. And in light of that, I wonder at what stage do you think that strong sense of empathy and long term vision is most effective when investing? Arguably, it might be that that really early stage where most startups don't even get off the ground. They lack the confidence that they lack the resource. They lack. Uh, much around that product market fit, but they've got the right ingredients. Would you guys look to incubate or do you, you'd rather take on companies once they've proven themselves? Because I guess the question is how many companies don't make it because they haven't got someone like you, an infrastructure like you around to help them get further up, up the line? Or do you think at that point, at that stage, that is at Starwin, if they make it, if they make it past that, then we're interested. No, look, so I think again, um, agree empathy is important at every step of the way because at every step of the way you deal with different problems sometimes the problems get bigger and bigger uh, it doesn't get easier as, as you grow uh, being having empathy is important but also being able to maintain this ability to be constructive in your criticism and hold your entrepreneurs and your partners accountable and push them to achieve you know their best um kind of potential means you can't just be overly nice and just pat them on the back you have to find and strike the right balance there are times when you need to have empathy there are times when you need to be tough and and say like it is so for us you know we obviously have been more drawn to doing series a onwards or late series uh, late seed because of the size of the fund and also because we want to be able to have the resources and the time to dedicate to each company that we back. So if we start doing incubation or very, very early pre-seed, how many companies are we going, going to be able to spend time with now? And there are people who are specialized pre-seed investors that would probably do a much better job than we do. Having said that, um, we want to be able to uh, enable the transformation and the disruption. There are, there are aspects or there are, segments of prop tech or let's call it I, I don't like the word prop tech that much anymore but let's call it the built built world technologies there are aspects of it which are more mature where you'll find those series a b c d companies the market has grown you know you you, you can accelerate faster there are there are other pockets of the market which are more complicated which are more nascent where you won't find those more advanced businesses but you still want to get uh, uh, kind of going in that space. And so you'll be drawn to back companies at seed. And we have done seed. We'll continue to do seed, especially as we try to really continue driving our, our climate change efforts. There are a number of aspects and areas of the, of the industry where, which are still nascent. Um, inherently, looking at climate and decarbonization means you're going to look at much more complex businesses. Sometimes there are mix of hardware and software or deep tech, which are not the obvious things to back, like a, just a simple SaaS company would be. But we actually like that because it creates some sort of barrier to entry 
not every fund can look at it, not every fund can understand it, not every fund has the patience to do it. Um, and if you're willing to take those bets as well, uh, we're not the only ones doing them, but there's fewer firms doing those more complicated bets. I think eventually um, you, you, you'll find some, some form of, of, of competitive advantage in a world where venture is overcrowded. Um, I can't remember the stats, but I think we've doubled or tripled the number of GPs globally and the amounts of money raised. And I'm, I'm one of those new GPs, so I, I, I can't be too critical. But um, I think it's finding your, finding your niche, finding your, your segment. And I feel lucky that our niche i.e. the built world is actually massive uh, and it's much bigger and broader and we get to look at all sorts of technologies uh, in every single vertical of the industry so it never ever feels like a niche so I almost feel like a generalist within uh, a niche uh, if, if I can and say. Nick, you go one stage further because you mentioned a few times your, your desire to put a, a closer lens on the ESG piece because even within your, your new coin phrase what was it the built technological environment? Build, build world technology. Build world technology. We'll, we'll, we'll hashtag that and we'll, we'll get rid of prop tech. Uh, this within that ESG is obviously very topical. Uh, it's it's really having its time uh, in the sun. People often talk about how real estate is the biggest asset class in the world. They'll talk about how it's the biggest contributor to, to carbon in the world. And I feel like sometimes people therefore think, oh, great. Well, that's good because if, if we fix that we fix the problem the reality is that property despite being an asset class is highly fragmented both in ownership and, and, and operation how it's run and how it's built so do you believe that we can make a dent yes it's a bit it's a big asset class but when you look at the companies you back and and the people who pitch do you believe that we as an industry can make a meaningful difference to climate change uh if, if, if so why so I definitely am convinced. Um, I don't think we have a choice uh, to begin with. And I always say, look, the numbers speak for themselves, i.e. the scale, it's 40% of global emissions. So as for starters, you know, if I was gonna pick a place where I'm gonna try to move the needle, I'm gonna try to pick the place which has the ability to move the needle, as opposed to look at an industry which maybe accounts for 2% of global emissions. So great, even if you solve 50% of those emissions, you're changing by 1%. Doesn't move the needle. Won't change the problem, won't solve the problem. So 40% is a good place to start, right? Um, and then I, I like to think that, you know, 40% um, is the headline number, but you have to look under the hood to understand which part of the life cycle causes what sort of emissions, how can you fix it, what, what is going to take more, more time. It's challenging because I think people are split today when they look at built world um, emissions, which is how do we build better, greener, cheaper buildings. And that's very sexy, new material, biodiversity, all those things, which also we invest in. Less sexy part and the more complicated part is how do you fix the existing building stock, which by the way is 75% of the buildings in 2050 already are here. So we better find a way to fix them. And it's tough, it's expensive, it's painful. No two buildings are the same, especially when you wander around some European cities, you'll find that there is little uh, kind of consistency in the type of, uh, of, of, of buildings. Um, I genuinely believe we can for the simple reason that First of all, I'm seeing an unprecedented influx of amazing talent entrepreneurs that have realized that built world is the single most tangible way to tackle climate change today. And if they're gonna dedicate their life to that cause, that's probably the best place to be. So you have people from all walks of life around the world that are now looking at this industry and are building solutions, technologies, business models that are going to be targeting uh, emission. And I think that we are the time, um, almost feels like the stars are aligned. Yes, we have a, we don't have a lot of time to fix all those problems, um, but we are at a time where I don't believe there's ever been a better time to be an entrepreneur the access to capital, the access to knowledge, the access to people 
all of this has, has been broadly democratized. Um, and I think you can today, wherever you are, whoever you are, build something meaningful, build something that's going to scale, and build something that has the potential to change the world. It so happens that real estate is also the largest industry in the world, it affects every single person on the planet, especially in the developed world. Um, as you know, wherever you sleep, you work, you everything you do is linked to the built world. And the built world has an impact much beyond itself. We can talk about mobility, we can talk about all those things which are uh, interconnected. Um, and, and so I definitely think that this is the single best way to do it. Now, it's not only about the E and ESG. I genuinely believe that the S can be targeted through real estate. When we talk about um, affordability, when we talk about social divide, when we talk about kind of inequalities, again, real estate affects everyone. It's the biggest expenditure in people's budget. So if we were able to build more homes, more affordable, if we can find ways to enable people to access ownership at, a, at, a, at, a, at an affordable cost, I think we are going to start solving some of those issues in a meaningful way. And so I generally believe the E and the S are, uh, are well, let me rephrase. I generally believe that real estate is potentially one of the most powerful vectors for the E and the S if we apply technology in the right way, if we invest the right amount of money, if we have the right level of alignment between all the stakeholders, and it's the big issue of real estate or the big challenge is that you have many, many different stakeholders, many, many different interests, and it's layered in a way that makes it hard to penetrate, hard to understand, and hard to scale within. But I believe we're getting better and better at this and that the future is very, very bright, arguably, one good thing I'm biased, uh, A, because that's what I do, but also because I tend to be an optimist and I don't think you can do my job if you're not an optimist. So um, that would be my take on it. Anyone listening to that will probably be feeling incredibly inspired, probably become a vegetarian and now using, you know, recycled plastics. And then they go back home, tomorrow happens and they get back into the flow of things. What can you tell these people that you're actually seeing today? If we, if we move past the, uh, the ambition, the desires and the aspirations around where we want to be, as you mentioned, you're privileged enough at this point in time to meet world-class entrepreneurs who are presenting to you solutions that are either ready today to make a difference or will make a difference in the future. So if you had to name three companies, three products, three ideas or concepts that excite you, not because purely of their uh, potential financial reward in the long term, 10 years, but they make a meaningful impact to the world. Can you identify three companies, three products, three visions that really excite you? So there are a few. Um, again, disclaimer, I might or might not mention some of my portfolio companies, but again, totally normal. Uh, not to advertise them because they don't need it, but just because generally I feel inspired. So look, um, and I apologize for the ones I won't mention uh, um, because also I'm conscious of time. So I would start by maybe mentioning uh, one of our early, early bets. You asked me before if we were willing to go early. So I think we came uh, seed or even pre-seed uh, in a company in the UK called Satellite View, uh, which had a vision um, to uh, create uh, uh, a constellation of satellites that will leverage a groundbreaking technology that's using uh, uh, infrared thermal imaging to be able to map out and identify and calculate the carbon emission of every single building on the planet to a level of details never seen before. So if you had asked me two and a half years ago when I was trying to launch the fund that we would be backing satellite companies, I would have never even believed you, nor did I think I had the capabilities to even begin to understand what, what those businesses are, right? Um, but this was something and credit to the team who really pushed 
which had a great vision because in a way, when we look at the climate emission in the real estate industry, um, having the data is the first step. You can't fix something that you, you, don't, you don't know about, that you, you don't have the, the data about. Now, trying to receive information about each building on their own uh, emissions can be very challenging because you have to rely on on-site data and on the, the each landlord owner, which they might not have the data, they might not want to share the data, you might not even know who the owner is. So if you're able to create that single source of truth that is completely disconnected from the actual physical ownership of the asset, that can give you data about a building, that can benchmark uh, buildings or villages or cities against other parts of the world, you create that critical layer of information about carbon emissions that can then feed through the system uh, at, the, at the regulator's level, at a, a bank's level, at an insurance level, at an investor's level, and you start creating a benchmark that you can compare. You understand what this number means versus the other one. You create accountability. And you start really paving the way for, for, for a, 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 a complete uh, kind of change in the way we're able to map out those inefficiencies. Um, and for me, I think there are so many applications um, on that. And I cannot be more excited. I think they will be hopefully launching um, in the next uh, early next year, uh, the first the first satellite, and I think it could be a game changer. And again, we came in so early um, that you had to really believe in the vision. And and so far, um, the company is 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 accelerating and is doing very well. And we we're extremely excited. Um, I'll talk to you about another company which is in the US, uh, which is uh, a team of uh, ex Tesla guys that have decided to um, build a business that would completely reinvent uh, and rethink uh, probably one of the most obsolete and least uh, disrupted piece of hardware in the world, which is the home electricity panel. Um, in a world, and it's specifically true in the US for now, in a world where each home is bound to become much more electrified. So you, you're going to have EV charging station, you're going to have uh, solar panels, you're going to have increasingly more IoT and smart devices in your home. Having a central nervous system that is able to manage, operate, prioritize, and gather the data about all those different things that are connected to your house are enabled enabling each home to become much more intelligent is enabling us and us could be insurance companies could be all sorts of stakeholders that surround this house to get accurate data about what's happening and when you combine it with battery and storage you enable each home to not only be a consumer of energy or electricity but also to become a distributor of energy and when you do that you decentralize the grid and if you decentralize the grid you solve a whole bunch of, of, of problems that we're very well aware of every time the grid goes off in the US. And this is a company that we've backed you know, last year um, that I genuinely believe is the key to the at scale mass electrification of our residential market. And obviously starting in the US, starting they started with uh, single family uh, properties because obviously this is where you know a lot of this electrification is happening right now but they'll be expanding hopefully over time into multifamily. And I genuinely believe that uh, Arch, which is the entrepreneur and the founder, has a vision, a confidence and a talent that uh, will enable him to change, to change the world in that respect. Uh, and we're very, very excited that we're able to join, join the adventure and continue to support them in a, in a, in a meaningful way. And I think there will be a lot of consequences from the expansion and the success of, of that company. Um, do you want another one or are, are I, I you- I feel uh, like, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm as excited as you are hearing about it, particularly as a lot of these sound very 
unlikely. You know, they, they come from a point of view where if you're being pitched them, you say, oh, it could never work. But I think what you're demonstrating here is that you have to be optimistic in the future and where we're going and support these companies to, to, to get to the point where you are, where you're, where you're part of that process. And uh, I would like to hear more, but I'm just conscious of time, basically. And I oh, feel right. like you'd, you'd happily also talk for a long time about it. So maybe for another time, go into more of them. Uh, hearing you talk about those companies and how each one's so different, how edu do you find yourself going down sort of like Wikipedia holes very quickly after meeting companies? Do you find that because you're working with so many diverse organizations, is there enough time in the day for you to become familiar with how rockets are sent to space, satellites rather, compared to how uh, home electricity boards work, compared to the, the, the plethora of other businesses you invest in? Do you find yourself consumed by knowledge or is that part of the way you're set up that, as you say, it is a community-based uh, of, of thinking decision making or does your passion for it just take over look uh, so there, there's two sides of it i think um, when we started building ao i wanted to build a, a team that has very diverse backgrounds expertise experience what i didn't want to do is just hire people from vc that would have legacy mindset and thinking and that everyone would just look at everything in the same manner so having already that collection of expertise from you know real estate to data science to engineering to all sorts of things that we touch upon on, on a daily basis allows us to cultivate and build a knowledge internally that is useful in most cases. And we really try to make that knowledge. So each person will have different kind of balls of expertise. Uh, which they've nurtured, but we really try to make sure that, that that expertise is shared and is accessible to every person in the company so that everyone has the ability to feed their curiosity, their ambition and, 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 and grow. Of course, there are many times where a lot of us uh, in the early, 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 day, early hours of the day fall into a, a rabbit hole on the web looking at you know, all sorts of fascinating things. And it's great because you have to uh, always nurture your curiosity and that's one way to learn. And we have also around us a great network of people around the world who have uh, expertise and experience and access that we don't necessarily always have in-house. It would be presumptuous for me to say that we do. We, well, of course we don't. Um, and we're able to tap into those. Uh, and we pick every year you know, a few themes that we do deep dives into. We have a research team that allows us to really uh, go very deep into um, the thesis and the themes that uh, we want to expand on and we're bullish on. So we continuously grow and expand our knowledge. Um, and we learn a lot from the entrepreneurs that we meet, that we back, uh, allows us to sharpen our pencil as we go along, uh, along. And that's what's fascinating because we are on our own journey. And I won't stand there and, and tell you that we know everything and we have everything figured out. But I think the beauty of growing and expanding and 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 is just amazing. And if I see where we started from and where we are today, I mean it's um, it's just amazing. And it's only the beginning. So we 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 are able to fulfill this curiosity and this ambition through the companies and the fields that we look at. And that's what makes our 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 day to day so exciting and so rewarding and so inspiring. You mentioned earlier on that by virtue of your of your background and your your nature, you like being the underdog. You like proving people wrong and then coming out on top. Let's say, for example, you've now done that in the in the very short period that you've been operational within this new capacity within this new this new venture. Uh, what does the future look like? Do you have to just to carry on finding new 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 ways to be an underdog? Do you can or or can you thrive from from a position of strength? So. Um, so I always like to, I never take comfort or I never take, uh, kind of, yeah, I never take comfort in success or I never take success for granted. I always say, first of all, we raised a lot of money. That's great. That doesn't make us successful. We, we investing in a lot of amazing businesses that are doing well right now is great but it's still paper money um and so i i always try to push the boundaries of where what we take comfort from so i generally believe that no matter where we end up 
I'll always have this culture of not taking comfort in anything because things can change. Um, and always kind of keeping uh, keeping the focus, keeping the humility uh, that, and keeping the drive um, to carry forward. So the future for me looks like, you know, us being able to continue growing as a firm, and we're well underway to do that, um, um, to be able to consistently attract great talent in the firm and nurture them and keep them for me, one of the greatest uh, satisfaction is, and it's as much of a satisfaction that when I see one of our companies break out, is to see people that came through my doors and have grown, have expanded, and are becoming kind of amazing young professionals with a much brighter future ahead of them than they had potentially when they came in because of the opportunities, the trust, that we're able to provide them. Um, and uh, everything I do and everything that we do is made in a way, and we're full of imperfections, but we always try to create that every single person has the space to grow, has the space to expand, and that nobody's ever siloed. So for me, the success is that we continue growing, um, that we are the ability to and continue investing in great companies, that we have the trust of, of entrepreneurs, obviously the trust of, of our investors and to feel that we continuously make a difference. And last but not least, um, we, we're going to grow, we're going to expand, we're going to look very, very different a year or two from now than we did today or even two, three years ago. Uh, it's important to never lose sight of our North Star, who we want to be and who we aspire to be and never, never um, kind of forget what our values should be and have to be regardless of the size and regardless of the success um, because you have to stay true to to who you are what you want to be i always aspire to be the same person that i am professionally that i am you know personally and that uh, i don't have to be a, a different person and so for me being able to apply the same values across the board uh, is is very important so that's also what success uh, looks like for, for the firm. And look, I think anyone hearing today uh, won't doubt the sincerity and passion with which you speak. And so it makes me wonder what you were like in your mid-20s when you were an investment banker, whether you spoke with such passion and, and, and excitement for what you were doing there. And when you take that, that juxtaposed way of living and you reflect on those years versus now, there are people listening to this who will feel like you were in your mid-20s. Now that you've come out the other side, through your own journey in a place where you're clearly enjoying life and the challenges and successes and that come with it. What advice would you, would you give to people who are feeling stuck in a rut and maybe, you know, to your point earlier, won't have that, that multi-year buffer to take a risk from, from what, from where you sit now, what will you tell people who are in a job where they're not fulfilled? It, it isn't a, a job that has a, a, a clear mission to it. It's not saving the world, it's paying the bills, but they're inside, they're wanting more. From someone who's gone through that, what would you tell them? So, look, I'll say that I started with a two-year buffer, but at some point I probably had the buffer of a few days. So, <laughs> uh, you know, um, so, so, look, without wanting to be too philosophical and also sometimes I feel bad giving advice because who am I to give advice? Um, I have my own journey. Um, and but But I would say... Because of what happened to me as a child, because I always felt I had a second chance and I had to make something out of it, um, I always wanted to leave a, a meaningful mark of however time I have on this planet. That doesn't mean I was always as clear-minded as I am today. And probably in my mid-20s, I, I, I don't think I would like that much the person I was in my mid-20s. Uh, but it's 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 about the journey again. So whoever, you know, um, it, it doesn't matter, but I would, I would advise that. Um, I don't think there is anything worse than um, not uh, uh, being uh, in tune with what you do on a daily basis. Right. Um, and obviously there is an economical reality that you have to pay the bills. You have to earn the job. But I think that 
um, when you look at the amazing examples or journeys that some people go through from, you know, having started from very complex or disadvantaged um, kind of uh, early years and situations, um, they were able to make it, they were able to figure it out. And I think so if, if you're stuck in a place that you don't like, um, try to understand and think and spend the time, figure out what you want. Because in a way we spend our lives trying to chase this notion of happiness and what we want to be happy and that's what we chase. But sometimes, most of the time, we actually don't know what makes us happy. So if you don't know where you, what you're aspiring to, it's very, very hard to get there. Uh, so that would be number one. Number two, step by step, um, you don't go from A to Z in one go. You have to have the patience. You have to have the understanding that you have to go through certain hoops for, for things to happen. And it will happen in time. Sometimes from A to B will take a certain times and B to C will take a lot longer, a lot shorter. And it might be different for, for your neighbor. But having the direction is, for me, the, the most crucial aspect. Um, having the direction of travel and then spending the time to build yourself. You work, if you're in a job that you don't like, it's probably an eight hour a day job or 10 hour a day job. Well, you have, you know, 16 hours left in the day to spend two, three hours a day, maybe to invest in yourself, to invest in building yourself, building your knowledge, you know, building your network. Um, uh, and I would say that, you know, I, for many years, I always focused on trying to find the best investment until the day I realized that, you know, the best investments I ever made was an investment in myself and taking a chance on myself. We don't always, we often do not take chances on ourselves. We just go in this rat race and, you know, we follow, we do things because it's the way it's supposed to be without ever actually taking a chance on ourselves. But when you do and when you put the work and the resources and the time to actually really in invest in yourself, um, things change, things happen. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Greg, can I call you Greg now? Will we yeah, yeah, past Gregory? Great, great. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. It's, look, an hour has gone. I think we've, we've used all of the time. And I hope everyone listening walks away feeling inspired, hopeful, uh, and better informed on what's possible than, than beforehand. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, for your thorough and uh, thought-provoking answers to the questions and I'm sure everyone will be hearing more and seeing more of you in, in the near future so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, apologies for being too philosophical and if people wanted to listen about uh, only prop tech they might be disappointed but for everyone else hopefully we uh, were able to shed an interesting light. I completely agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's nice to see you. Thank you for listening to Pixel Chasing and well done for making it right to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to share with others who you think might also enjoy it. And to be kept up to date with all we're up to here, you can always follow us on the usual channels. On Twitter, we are at Pixel Chasing. On Instagram, we are at Pixel Chasing. And if you want to join our newsletter to be kept up to date with all future episodes, you can join that on our website, which is pixelchasing.com. Thank you. See you next time.